Okay, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are a recovery podcast. We have special guests to come on and talk about their recovery from all different walks of life or all different types of addictions or alcoholism or mental health. Today we have a very special guest. He's he's a friend of mine named Mike Bradshaw. Mike actually works at a place called LifeSync. Uh, it's in Malibu. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I've I think that Mike and I have ran in the same recovery circles in in LA for for a bunch of years. Um, but I really I got I met him and got to know him more a few years back when I went to LifeSync to uh, at, a, at a you know it was like a little open house or something like that. But I remember just meeting him and just really vibing with him. Mike, welcome to the corner. Thank you. Nice to have you on today. So usually we like to delve into your past, uh, see where you were born, see where you were raised. Um, talk about what you got into as far as uh, drugs or alcohol or both, and then we can get into the recovery portion and also your professional background. So tell us, who is Mike? Oh, Mike. I was born in Panorama City and raised in Simi Valley, California, which we'll end up on later. That's where I ended up full circle. Um, normal kid. Uh, grew up in Simi Valley, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, you know, my, my childhood memories are walking to and from school, playing in the neighborhood, playing in the streets, nothing, nothing really out of the ordinary, pretty good childhood. Um, had both parents, my dad left when I was around eight or nine, things changed a little bit, but not a whole bunch. Um, my mom did a really good job of keeping things pretty normal. Um, there were a couple of times in my early teens, I think where, uh, we had to move in with my grandma a couple of times, but still nice, supportive family. Nothing, nothing seemed horrible. It was a good childhood. Um, entered Lawrence Junior High School in seventh grade. Uh, good student, really good student. Surfer dude, skater kid. Uh, then something happened. I like to blame it on Robert Smith because I started listening to The Cure and shit just went downhill from there, dude. Um, <laughs> It's, but the cure is uh, awesome, man. What I know. I, I I know. It's uh, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the black clothes. Whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could I, I could say I could say a thousand things. Blame it on the kids that I was hanging out from L.A. and Hollywood. Who knows? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, not a not a big fan of pot, but uh, smoked it a couple of times. Uh, alcohol was definitely my thing, and whatever came along with it. Um, yeah. Some coke here, some meth here and there in my teens. A lot of acid in my senior year, mm-hmm. um, but always alcohol. That was. And how, how old were you when you first started drinking? Oh man, my first memory of actually drinking was with my buddy Jonas, and uh, I don't think he'll see this, but if he does, it'll be kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we dipped into his parents went to the movies, and we thought we have we have about two hours to drink, and we were probably eleven, man. We had two hours to drink, so we 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 had a bottle of uh, Seagram Seven and a bottle of tequila, and we just passed them back and forth. Um, and really, all I remember that night was his mom just watching over us as we both puked all over the floor. Um, that was that was the first time I remember actually drinking and getting drunk. But I, I'd say I started drinking around thirteen. Okay. Uh, so what his mom, you guys got into her liquor or their liquor, and then she came yeah. home and saw you guys trashed and kind of just watched? Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of made sure we didn't die. Okay. And um 
And as far as like your first recollection of alcohol, was it too strong or did you like it immediately? Or did you think this is this, uh, I don't like this, but I'm going to keep doing it because I, I want, cause you love the effect. I, I, I said, I'm never going to do this again. And then um, how, how soon after? It was probably a year, year and a half. Well, okay. Yeah. yeah and, and I don't remember that. I don't remember the actual event. I mean, all of my friends, it was old English was a big thing at the time. We all had forties of old E at, at every, every weekend party. And that, that I think actually, now that I'm thinking about it, this is going to happen a lot, man. My memory is a little trashed eighth grade um, is when I remember actually actively trying to find ways to leave school and drink. So fairly young, I was looking for ways to drink rather than do something productive. Cut in class in the eighth grade. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So were the grades dropping? Were you not doing well anymore? <clears throat> yeah. Grades started to drop at the end of eighth grade. Um, I mean, put a, I'll put it to you this way. I took pre-algebra in seventh grade because I was on a track to, uh, to be a pretty decent student. I also took pre-algebra in 12th grade. That's kind of how it went. Right. So I, I started out really strong and ended in the same place, which was strong for a seventh grader. Now, did you have any siblings or anything like that that were growing up around, like with you? Yeah, two older sisters. Um, one of them is, last time I checked, um, active alcoholic. Um, my armchair psychological guess would be bipolar one, maybe two, uh, self-medicating, very successful for most of her life and just drank herself into a bad place. I haven't talked to her or heard from her really in a few years. Um, my other older sister, she's successful, lives up in Ridgecrest, far from an alcoholic, no. but really, really love to get married to him. Um, so take what you want out of that one. Uh, my right. dad was definitely an alcoholic. My mom, not so much. My mom's my mom's the one that will drink a half a glass of wine and say, I need to stop. This is working. Right. Yeah. I understand that. Okay, so there may be an alcoholic gene within your family system. May or may not. We don't really know. Bro, if you dug into my cousins, you would know that there definitely is. Okay, okay. So there's some gen genetics there. All right. Oh, yeah. So... So like between eighth and 12th grade, it was pretty much just party time. Like school was kind of on the back burner or you were still making it to school, but, but drinking was essential. Like you, you guys were partying a lot, obviously. I, I imagine it was like high school partying, like going, you know, to whether you're cutting class or the weekend's coming, so-and-so's parents out of the town are out of town. So you go party and kegger parties and things like that. Yeah, more or less. But I think the big difference for me was Mike's going to be here. Something stupid's going to happen. I was, I was, I was a guy that made stupid things happen. Like belligerent. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was either a fight running around naked. Just, I mean, you name it. Um, I kind of drank myself to the point where I didn't want to quit drinking anymore and just wanted to raise hell. Mm. Yeah. And so, uh, did you start pushing your friends away? Mm. Or did you have that drank with you and they liked drinking with you because you guys were just a bunch of drinkers? Just a bunch of drinkers. I had I had pr plenty of lower companions. Right. Right. Yeah. 
it's kind of a trip to to look back and think about the people that were lower companions and then to think, oh, you know what? Actually, I was a lower companion too. Yeah, and that that's the that's the funny thing. When I got sober, I I I started reconnecting with all of my friends and I was like, wow, these guys were all really successful. And I'm just starting over at 34. So it it is kind of funny. I was, I was definitely the lower companion. Okay. So did you finish high school on time? Barely. Yeah. And then, yeah, I didn't. I didn't walk. I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't want to be a part of any of the traditional stuff. I just wanted to get out of high school. Right. And then when you got out of high school, what'd you do? Ooh, decided it would be a good idea to move to Nevada. And what'd you do there? Ah, man, you a went lot to Reno, of, Reno, right? Uh, yeah, I was. I was south of Reno in a little place called. Uh, I started out in Minden. It was a little tiny town. It's not quite that small anymore. And then ended up in Carson City and kind of bounced around, ended up in Dayton. But it was all it was all South Arena. Carson uh, City, the capital of, of Nevada, right? Yeah. 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 And what did I do there? I didn't I did nothing good. Um I went to work for a uh it's like a it's an ice cream company, number one, but they do like uh, home delivery in rural areas for frozen food, like gourmet frozen food. And I was a warehouse manager and worked overnights and uh got off work and went to once I found out that you could drink twenty four hours a day and there was some aid to help you with that that you could find on the streets, it was just kind of on from there. That was really it. So does that mean if you were working overnights, does that mean you were drinking at work or just drinking when you got off work or all the time? Most of the time when I got off of work, I wasn't quite 24 hours a day at that point. Um, but by 7.30 in the morning, I was I was either sitting on the river drinking beer or sitting in a casino or a bar drinking beer. Um, and that was, that was at 18 years old. I got a fake ID shortly after I moved there. Were you a gambler? <laughs> I thought I was for a little while. Right. Um, and no, I was uh, I was a guy that would get twenty dollars in nickels and sit at the nickel video poker machine just to get free drinks. And that's usually what they do. But the more yeah. you gamble, the more they bring you the drinks. Yeah. Okay. So how long did you last in Nevada? It's it's really 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 hard to pin down three or four years um, at most. Um, I went there. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my mom, my sister. Resentment that I'm still trying to work through. Uh, had the sheriffs come look for me and find me. Did a, a social call. I mean, it was, it was. Uh, I was running from something. I just didn't know it at the time. Um, later on, after I got in my step work, it, it was easy to figure out. But uh, I was there for a few years. Got tired of the snow. Came back to uh, kind of be with my mom a little bit. My stepdad was sick and dying, um, and it wasn't much help when I got back either. But I thought I was. Did you go live back with your mom when you came back to yeah. California? Yeah. And then, uh, so you couldn't have, you couldn't be of good help to her or him because you were inebriated, you were drunk a lot, or what? I was just never home. Uh, I was pretty much drunk anytime, anytime after two or three o'clock in the afternoon. But I just wasn't around. I came home and just started partying with the same old friends again. And at this time, you were what in your in your twenties, mid twenties, early, very early twenties, twenty, twenty one, twenty two. Okay, and then what? Well, started hanging out with the same friends. There was a period there right after I got back when I dipped into meth a little bit. Mm -hmm. Hung out with some of my uh, more biker leaning friends. 
Uh-huh. Dipped into meth, tried to figure life out, met a girl, thought I should start figuring my life out, got a somewhat normal job, went back to school for a, a systems engineering thing with Microsoft, started doing that for a little bit. Um, and then fell into an, actually, uh, actually I'm leaving about three years of my life out. I went to work at a hospital, <laughs> um, and worked my way up into a, a director position at a hospital. And this, this is actually important because I was actually asked to resign because of my drinking. Um, how long, did, how did you, how long did you work in that hospital until that happened? About three years. And it wasn't until I, I held it. I, I worked shifts for about two years so I could plan my drinking and I wasn't really showing up for work under the influence or, or, or reeking of booze. Mm-hmm. But once I got into a director role, I kind of I was a salaried position. Um, and I thought I was king of the world being a hospital director in my early 20s. So I was I was partying all night and showing up stinking drunk every morning. Like they could smell the alcohol in your breath. That's that's how it ended up. Is this is a funny story? I, I uh, it's also an embarrassing story. I oversaw the uh, the security department, and one morning I was there, and I remember it was it was the the anniversary. I think it was actually the day of nine eleven. Um, somebody had broken into the radiology department, so I helped you know chase this person down, tackled her, got her handcuffed, and when the cops showed up and I was giving them custody of her, they actually charged her with public intoxication because of my breath and my employees whisked we whisked me away immediately they were like bro you gotta go you stink oh um, God. yeah yeah that was uh that that's that's a fun uh, that's a fun amendment to try to make because i could never find that person uh, that's the thing i was thinking right now is i wonder if you made amends to her uh, I, w- I wish I could. I wish yeah. I could. There'd be no way for me to even get her name or anything. I didn't get sober for at least another 10 years. Right, right. Um, I mean, she was doing bad things anyway, but she she definitely got the charges she was supposed to. But that public intoxication charge was certainly mine. That was your fault. Okay. Now, um, after you got canned from the hospital, what'd you go on and do? That's when I ended up... Um, working for a call center and doing the Microsoft engineering thing. And I kind of, I kind of fell into uh, funny, the guy that called you because he saw that I was going to be on your show and left you that voicemail, John coffee. Mm-hmm. I actually, I spoke to him uh, before, before I came on the show and uh, he was a guy that I worked with. Uh, we worked for IBM at Anthem and WellPoint. Uh, and it, it's funny when he was talking to me just now, he said, man, I never knew you had a problem. Congratulations. And I'm thinking I used to run over to El Torito every single day at lunch. And I would put back a couple of shots and I'd come back in and we'd sit in our basement cubicles and just go back to work. And uh, so that, that's what I was doing. It was ACF2 mainframe work. And towards the end of that, John's actually a part of this, this part of the story too. Towards the end of that, we were all working from home. And that was not good for me at all, man. No. Um, I remember I, I I don't remember if I resigned or got fired or if it was a mutual thing right but right before I was going into rehab, but I had a bunch of IBM equipment and this guy John is like banging on my windows and I'm just sitting there in my underwear, snot playing drunk at eight in the morning. And he's trying to help me out because he heard they were mad at me and that guy was actually in my story for quite some time and he had no idea that I was an alcoholic and that's kind of terrifying. I was that good. I was that good, man. I understand the double life, right? Yeah. 
sometimes the double and triple life or even more. Yeah. So how long did you last at IBM? And then what happened? Like, I mean, what happened? Did you work there a long time? I was there for quite a few years because before, before it was IBM, it was just WellPoint. I was with WellPoint for a couple of years. So uh, four or five years, somewhere around there. And what, what was this in Simi Valley or where was it? It was in Woodland Hills. Woodland Hills. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, did you get fired from that job or did you just leave or what happened? I think it was a combination of both. I think it was a, a mutual understanding. I, I just kind of quit going to work and, they're just like, uh, this ain't working out. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I'm trying to, I'm trying to put it all together. That was really, really foggy at the end. I ended up going back for a short time after that, um, but that was right before I went to treatment. So, so treatment was how old were you? Thirty four. I was thirty four. Yeah. And had you ever been to any treatment or outpatient before that? <laughs> I had no idea what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I was raised that Alcoholics Anonymous was for drunks. And that was not me. So you thought? Right. <laughs> and then what made you go to treatment? Was there some kind of crisis uh, moment? Or did, did something bring you to treatment for a reason? Or did, did somebody push you there? All of the above. Um, what it came down to, and this is, this is, this is where the spirituality in my life begins. It's also where the problems in my life begin. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, everything was fine until I quit drinking or so I thought, um, I had it, you can call it burning bush, bright light experience, whatever it was. I mean, I was, I was literally drinking 24 hours a day. Couldn't go two hours without a drink. Otherwise I'd start shaking, dry heaving the whole nine. Beer or um, heavy stuff? Yeah, by that point, I was drinking bottom shelf pop-off vodka out of the plastic pints. Okay. Um, at least five a day. Um, sleep for a couple hours, wake up, take a few drinks, throw up, go back to sleep kind of a thing. Um, and I just decided I was going to quit drinking. I was done. I'd had it. Um, I was going to put my life back together. Didn't Didn't think to Google detox or anything like that. I, I quite, I, I remember saying to myself, I think I'm just going to piss and shit on myself for the weekend and then I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up in a full psychosis, Northridge Hospital trauma unit. Um, my heart stopped three times. I had organ failure. Uh, I remember I had to call my mom um, for, for help. And I called her, but I was still refusing to go get medical care. I thought I was just going to get through it. And I wasn't picking up the psychosis piece of the whole thing. But I was I was running into the corner of her apartment and standing in the corner going, I can hear my iTunes better here. The reception's better here. I mean, I was not in good shape. Right. Um, and I finally, she tried to convince me for a few hours. And I finally said, okay, let's go. Um, and we happened to end up at the hospital that I worked at, which was fun. Wow. So, yeah, I walked into the waiting room and the charge nurse who I knew, and she's just an angel. And I'll say her name in case this ever gets back to her. Her name is Charmaine. She's an absolute angel. She walked up to me and she said, who are you bringing in? And I said, me. And she asked me what was going on. And she took me right back. And uh, the, the doctor that literally saved my life, his name was Dr. Mack at Northridge Hospital. And I remember him asking me three things. He said, how much do you drink? for how long and when was your last drink? 
And when I answered those three questions, he walked over, picked up a phone on the wall. And that's really all I remember. Um, from what I'm told, I was, I was, I was chemically induced into a coma because I was in full organ failure. Um, couple of blips that I remember along the way. I remember going up in the trauma elevator up to ICU and just, just kind of going, I have a defibrillator on my chest. I have a defibrillator on my chest. I mean, I was, I was dying, dude. Multiple times I died between the emergency room and ICU. Um, and that's where it started. And to think that you thought Alcoholics Anonymous was for drunks. Right, right. Which wasn't me. I didn't, I didn't have a problem. None. Any cirrhosis or no. no? Okay, good. Nope. So being in that hospital, uh, how long were you hospitalized, at least in the detoxification era? I think I was in ICU for about three days. Um, I would honestly have to ask my mom or my family. I, I don't remember. The only thing that I really remember is the end of my hospital stay and telling myself, once I can get my IV pull to the smoking section on my own, I'm going to leave and go drink. That's really all I remember. Isn't that, isn't that baffling that Dude. addicts and alcoholics, we will we'll go get hospitalized knowing we need to get detoxified. We got to go through detox and get the substance out of us and how the, the, the it centers in our mind. Alcoholism centers in our mind to where we – it's cunning, baffling, and powerful to the point where we think like, yeah, I'm cleaned up, but like, I got to go do some more drinking. Like, that's all there is to it, or using for that matter. It's, it's, it's bizarre, man. And it was really tricky because I actually believed that all of that happened because I quit drinking, which was true. I was in the hospital from, from detoxing. I was in a hospital because I got sick because my body didn't have alcohol, but I didn't see that as the problem. I saw the problem that my body didn't have alcohol. That was the problem. Right. And I, th I think that's one of the, the key things for us that are alcoholics or addicts is it's one thing to be told about our condition. It's another to, to admit and to accept that we are powerless and definitely accept realizing like we have the condition, not just being told about it, but like accepting it. Like yeah. this, is a, this is a serious, lethal, fatal condition. And if I don't, do something about this. It's it's going to kill me. So, and you were going into psychosis as a result of it. Like that's a lot of drinking right there. That's oh yeah, it was it was it was pretty serious. Straight alcohol poison. Um, so, even though you wanted to go and drink again, did you? I did not. What was the I, turning point? What made you decide not to? Uh, my family intervened. Um, I was. Typical scenario. Everybody was at the hospital trying to convince me to go to rehab. Um, social worker trying to get me to go to rehab. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And I don't know if anybody actually knows this. Uh, people that have heard me share at meetings know this, but I don't know if my family knows this. It was a phone call with my grandma. And I just remember telling her, yeah, I'm going to be out of here in a couple of days. I'm going to get home and everything's going to be fine. And my grandma, who's just, just, salt of the earth, Mormon, spiritual, lovely woman just kind of giggled and said, no, you're not. And I went, fuck. <laughs> I think I'm going to do this rehab thing that everybody's telling me that I'm going to do. And it, it wasn't a force. It was just, that's what grandma thought I should do. So I better do it. Uh, that's, that's, that's my re recollection of it. So, 
So wait, you just mentioned she's Mormon. Grandma was Mormon. Yeah. Okay. Does that mean you grew up Mormon too? Until I was about 12. Yes. And then you were kind of exonerated from the, from the church as far as like a Jack Mormon, like you're, because you drink, like this is unacceptable in our. It was more, it, it didn't have anything to do with, uh, with drinking or alcohol. It was, it was just kind of the, the best I can remember is I remember talking to my mom just, and we had this conversation where like, this just isn't for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, of course my grandma wanted everybody in the Mormon church, but my mom understood that that was not my path. Okay. I mean, I grew up in Utah, so I'm, I've, Oh, I'm, there you go. My grandma's actually from Utah. Right. I was surrounded yeah. by Mormons. Yeah. So you weren't going on, on any, on any mission. No, I no, I did not make it that far. Yes. All right. I would not have been a good representation of the Mormon church. <laughs> I understand. Well, it, at least it, she was instrumental in saying one simple thing to you, which just made you, which was like the thing that switched you from wanting to go back out to drink. And so was you go to treatment after that? I did. I, I went from the, <clears throat> I agreed to go to treatment in the hospital and, and my family knew nothing about treatment either. So we kind of went off what the social worker had recommended. Um, and it just happened to be warm Springs. Oh, warm uh, Springs is yeah, I know what Warm Springs does. Yeah, anybody that's been around for a while remembers Warm Springs. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I, I remember there wasn't a bed there, and my sister actually worked for uh, an area representative, and she got me a bed there, but I had a two-week wait. I think it was two weeks. Um, Warm Springs is kind of a county bed, sort of to the equivalency of Acton, if I'm not mistaken, it's the sister program for Acton. I initially was able to get into Acton. And when I did my uh, my pre-admission intake, they asked me, and this is very important. They asked me if I wanted to go to the co-ed treatment center or the all-men treatment center. Acton was the co-ed, Warm Springs was the all-men. And I, I thought about it for a minute and I just, something said, go to the all-men program, dude. And I did. Um, and that's probably that was probably very pivotal in my recovery. Uh, I've, I've been sober 15 years next month. And I know that in in my early recovery, being that I got sober in Orange County, but I had a lot of mentors that were from LA. A lot of them were products of Acton and Warm Springs. That I used mm-hmm. to hear those names a lot more um, in the early two or yeah, early 2000s. Um, I think they're still there i think those programs are still there but from my understanding they're basically no nonsense uh county beds where was there counselors there were a few yeah therapists no so it wasn't that type of treatment where you're receiving therapy or anything like that it's basically you're here you're getting cleaned up um if there's a waiting list for a bed that means that you're going to cherish your bed because mm-hmm. other people will want it if you don't want it and they're they're not there to try to keep you there for your insurance policy or for like a, a yeah. large amount of money that you're paying. Like if you don't want to be here, go, right? Precisely. It was, it was the kind of place we had. Two of the counselors are really important to me still. I talk to them from time to time uh, if I get the chance, but there was one counselor there. I won't say his name, but he would literally walk through. We're talking, we had five barracks with 20 bunk bed racks in each one. So there's 40 guys in a room. Right. Um, no, no stalls in the bathrooms, just toilets. It was, uh, it was a prop 36 joint. Most of the people there were there in lieu of doing time. Um, right. 
I think there were four of us that really wanted to get sober. And when we left, went to meetings. But this is the kind of joint it was. Mike would walk into the barracks. And if, if you weren't sitting there with a big book, he would walk through. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. And he meant it. Um, we called him MacArthur Park Mike. And you can kind of figure out why. Yeah. And he's, uh, he, was, he, was, he was a rugged dude. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of place it was. You, I was up at five o'clock in the morning in the kitchen, volunteering in the kitchen. And then it was groups, 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 lunch, groups, 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 dinner, H and I, seven days a week for four months. And what, what were the groups like? <sighs> was it relapse prevention? Was it? It was all groups? CBT and 12 step stuff. Um, okay. A lot of relapse prevention. Uh, not, a, not a lot of skills based stuff. Not a lot of learning going on. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was just it straight was, up, just straight up groups. Like there were, were yeah. you're here for recovery or you're here for the wrong reasons, basically. Yeah. And you have a cinnamon roll on your, on your, on your lap. Get out of my group. You're done. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Was there, does, do those places make people write words or not like some of the more structured sober livings that are in LA and Orange County, right? No, it's not like that. You would only have to write words if you if you were if you got in trouble and you were going to get kicked out and wanted to stay. You would have to write the administrator a letter. Other than that, it was it was more work. Okay, and then how long did you stay at Warm Springs? Four months. And then uh, did they ever take you guys to meetings? No, we had H and I. The only time that we left property was uh, if, if you got hurt. Mm-hmm. I hurt my shoulder. I went to Olive View Hospital, which was a fucking treat. Pardon my French. Yeah. Um, and then all of the good clients got to go on the prices right, which was also an interesting treat. Those were the only two times I left in four months. <laughs> it was a trip, oh, dude. What a trip. We all got off of the Greyhound in the in the middle of I I think it was right in the middle of Hollywood at, at CBS Studios, and we all just jumped down, get in a squat position, we're starting to roll our cigarettes so that we can smoke before we go in. It was kind of a trip. Imagine that. Imagine, did any of them win? One of them, one of them won, and yes, he AMA'd. Of course, he AMA'd. He, yeah. he was being enticed. Yeah. <laughs> My God, that is such a trip. I said, yeah. whoa, whoa, what a what a reward. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember he. We were all making fun of him because he didn't realize he had to pay taxes and that he wasn't going to get it when he walked out the door. So right when we got back to the the treatment center, which is like thirteen miles up in the mountains. Uh-huh. He figured out a way to get out of there. He bounced and he was calling three weeks later trying to get in because he still hadn't gotten his guitar and his amp. And when he did, he was going to have to pay taxes on it. Well, that would be a fun episode to watch, just seeing like yeah. these these dudes that are straight out of prison that are in rehab. Yeah. Like, total fillers. Like just put them over there in the crowd. and maybe That's exactly them- what it was. When, yeah. when the producers come up and they interview you in line, it was like they got they did like three of us. Oh, you're from treatment. And then they just skipped the next 30 dudes right. and just went right. on down the line. I actually went on the show one time, but nobody was about to like call up. Pejman Olagamanda. They, they wanted they wanted the Mike Bradshaws, the, the easy name. Right. Not not of like course. a long ass Persian name. So okay, so once you're out of Warm Springs, what'd you do with your life? <sighs> Nothing for a long time. Um it's kind of important to note that it was a three-month program and and I, I wrote a letter begging to stay for another month because I was terrified. I understand. Um, I understand. So when I left there. I did what all of the H and I panelists told me to do, which was go find a home group, 
go find a sponsor and don't forget the world doesn't owe you anything. And that was, that was kind of it. You know, I left and I, I stayed on mommy's couch cause I didn't know what I was doing. And I was, I was at a meeting that ended up becoming my home group. And this dude literally walked up to me and was like, you need a sober living. And I was like, I, I do. He was like, yeah, you do. So he said, I'll pick you up tomorrow night, get your stuff. I don't know how he knew that or how it happened. I think it was just kind of a thing that they did there. Um, mm -hmm. And he scooped me up and I was in a sober living that was not much nicer than my treatment center. Yeah. And uh, I understand. With a, was this in the with valley? a bunch of scary dudes? Yeah, it was like dead center right in the middle of the valley. And um, question for you, Mike, like being in fear of leaving and asking to stay an extra month in treatment, but then coming out in this time, do you think in your mind that you had made up your mind that you don't want to drink anymore? What, what, had you made that decision yet or did you, were you still unstable? I had made the decision that if I were to drink again, I would be actively choosing to slowly end my life and that I did not want to do that. And how old you were, you were 35 at this time, 34, 35 years old? I was still 34 when I left. Yeah. When I left treatment. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't remember a moment where I ever dove in either. I remember a moment about a month and a half into rehab, excuse me. And I always tell everybody I caught alcoholism. There was a moment where I went, okay, everything might, might be okay from here on out. How old are you now? How. Oh, God, come on, dude. I'm 48. We're about the same age. I'm going to be 51 next month. But, okay, so you've been sober, what, 14, 15 years? 13. 13. And how long did you stay in sober living? Were they taking taking you to meetings, or were you going to meetings regularly then, too? I was there for about nine months, and we literally went to three meetings a day, Monday through Friday, and two on Saturday and Sunday. And were you working? No. How are you paying for sober living? I did my sober living manager's homework. No joke. Um, uh, there, there was, I had some money left over, some disability left over, but the last few months I was writing his papers for him in school. It was good spiritual <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I hope he's watching this. I won't say his name, but I hope he's watching it. Uh, <laughs> He was actually super important because he made sure that we were at the 7 a.m. Valley Club and then the Noon Moore Park meeting and then a nice fun speaker meeting five nights a week. Love the Moore Park meeting. Love all the I love all the Valley meetings. Dickens, yeah. all that. Um, okay, so he, so then you stayed there and he was pretty much hooking you up, like just helping you out to to have a place to stay sober, getting you to meetings. You guys had a fair exchange, a little barter system, and then afterwards. You then moved out of sober living and got your own place and were just kind of plugged into the community. Were you like very active? I was, I was very, very active. I, I did H and I for the first year religiously. Um, mm -hmm. I had my own panel. I actually went back to warm Springs on H and I panels and I did, I did the work there. I mean, That's I was the guy awesome. that I was, I was the guy that did the pink motel out in Silmar. Was, I would go to that dust ward right across the street. As long as I was talking, mm -hmm. I was good. Um, so yeah. I was really active. For those that don't know what H&I is, when I first heard H&I, when I was locked up, I thought it stood for homies and inmates. It's actually <laughs> it's hospitals and institutions. It's for the people that are less fortunate. You bring a message to them, whether they're in detoxes or they're in rehabs or they're in 
incarcerated people that are uh, active members of a 12-step community will come and share their experience, strength, and hope with them to help them. And I think it's remarkable to, that you went back to Warm Springs, the place where you got sober and you were able to carry a message. I've done the same thing when I was locked up in juvie. I found myself in the exact same unit when I got sober, sharing my experience, strength, and hope with these youngsters that looked a lot like me in their yep. county blues, sitting there listening to the message. So I think that's a very powerful thing to do. And, and it, it helps you stay sober. I mean, it's really like you're being a service to, to the less fortunate. So good job on that. I love that. That's just my heart to hear that. Now, um, it's my understanding that, you know, for the next few years, you worked in some treatment settings. Tell us about Sober College. I've, I've heard, I know that some of my friends that work over at Interactions were mm -hmm. former uh, employees of Sober College and I've heard good things. Like, tell, isn't that like a, it was a rehab that was over in, in, uh, in the Valley, correct? It was in Woodland Hills and those people you're speaking of are actually my mentors. Um, all of them, actually. I know all of the ones you're speaking of and I just, saw, I just saw one of them the other day and I always tell her how important she was to my life. I think I know exactly who you mean. She's a great lady. I should get on get her on here too. Yo, God, you really should. It wouldn't hurt to get uh, the guy with the mullet on here either. Yes, I think I know who he is too. Yeah, um, both, both of them. She was the clinical director and he was the program director when I started there. So how that happened was I was in sober living. I realized I was going to, I was doing nothing but Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, right. And that had kind of become in my life, which, which was awesome. But I wanted to go to school and I wasn't too far away from Pierce uh, with my sober living. So I decided to take an addiction studies class to learn. I was going to figure out what was wrong with me and fix it, to be honest with you. Um, and I just fell in love with it. And I saw this, there was a meeting that, sober college went to and i remember seeing all of these kids that looked like they should have just been little punk asses and they mm -hmm. should have been a terror in the meeting and they were actually pretty decent yeah and i just re i started to figure out hey they're with a treatment center and i found out i talked to one of the techs and i looked it up online and i was like this is pretty cool man they do trapeze therapy surf therapy trapeze therapy. yeah yeah, one of one of the trainers from uh, uh, the I think it was the Bailey brothers from Barnum and Bailey has a trapeze set up in their backyard where they do training for uh, the studios. Uh -huh. But uh, I, it was a trip, and and when I looked into it more, it was like an actual college, and that blew my mind because all I had heard for the last 10, 11 months was "Don't do anything big in your first year," and I'm trying to figure out how in the hell are people going to college when they get sober. Right. So I took uh, I took a two night a week overnight tech job and just absolutely fell in love with it, man. It just it was it was the raddest thing in the world to hang out with people. This is the way it was in the beginning to hang out with people that actually wanted to do better with their lives and just feel like I was a part of that. That was just there was a whole healing cycle there that I just I fell in love with it. So I just kept going to school, kept working there and. I think I was there for a total of uh, between five and six years. I had two different two different stints there. Um, the first one was mostly operations and tech and management. And then uh, I ended up being a, a men's counselor and a family counselor there. That's when I got into the clinical side of treatment. Nice. And uh, it's just amazing place, man. So 
and when you've been around for a while, like you have, and you've worked in these types of settings, and I, I love that you call them your mentors. Uh, I have myself worked in many different places where um, I met some of the best people that I've ever, both going to school and seeing the, the instructors and teachers that taught us um, human services, drug and alcohol counseling, it just exceptional uh, teachers who really showed us how to present ourselves, how to be good members in society, how to how to help the addict and the alcoholic. And, and then on top of that, you, you if we're involved in the 12-step community, it makes it that much better because we have our own recovery. And by us working our own program and having good recovery, we're able to help out the, the people that come through these types of places and be alongside the mentors that are just just totally filled with wisdom, experience, and and so I like the way that you talk about them. Like I, I get that. I have my own mentors too that that just stand out to me because they they're in they were in it with their hearts and they continue to be and they they truly help us become who we are. Um, so down the line, I mean, you ended up working in a few different places. How did you end up at LifeSync? And tell us about LifeSync. What do you do there? Oh, life sink. Uh, I'm going to have to dance around a little bit and bounce around to kind of get to it. Life sink is owned by Dr. Booth and his brother, Stephen. Mm -hmm. um, I had actually known Dr. Booth before life sink when I worked at Soba. Um, he was one of the medical doctors there. So I knew him a little bit. Um, and it's the best way to do this prior to life sync i was i was running a wildwood treatment center out in thousand oaks mm -hmm. um, and that was also another doctor owned and operated uh facility it was owned by dr thomas um loved it there didn't have any issues there wanted to grow a little bit um and i i had known natalia for quite some time um, and she ended up down the line marrying dr booth but at the time she was dating dr booth um, and he was looking for a program director and she said, you need to call Mike Bradshaw. Um, and I went and interviewed with, with him and his brother. And there was, there was something about, it's going to sound so cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway. There was something about that place. Um, and I remember one of the things that I said in the interview, and I'm pretty sure I was trying to blow it up because I didn't, I, I wanted to, I wanted to grow, but I'm also terrified of growth. And I remember saying, this is going to be my last treatment job. If it's two weeks, that's cool. If I retire here, even better. But this is my last job in treatment. And for some reason, that didn't scare them. Um, and it didn't even put them off. And that it was just a relationship that went from there. We, we talked treatment philosophy, um, which we all agreed on immediately. Um, and that's, that's, that's a lot of where life sync is today. It's about love. Um, it's about acceptance. It's about the lack of judgment because we know the shit that people go through before they even get to our doors. Yes. Um, so we talked about a lot of that. We talked about, and a big thing for us, we talked about relapse, um, and what we do with patients when they relapse and how we treat them and everything just lined up perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I left the interview and went, ah, I blew it. They're never going to call me again. They offered me the job and I, I jumped at it. And I've been there for just over four years now. Dude, you, I think that you're your own worst critic. Like you are, you're a value. You <laughs> that's, 
That's part of the alcoholic condition, I believe, perhaps. Exactly. I No, I. they're very lucky to have you. I believe there's a reason they've kept you this long. Um, you're pretty much one of the, you're the backbone of the place from what I know. Um, Natalia, I know her personally, Dr. Booth, I've met him too. I've got, I've come out and seen the facility. I've been there a couple of times and I really, really enjoy not just because it has a nice view, but I enjoy what goes on there clinically. I like that. I like the fact that it's doctor owned and that he's hands-on within the, the facility, not just acting as a doctor, but acting as a person that's there that cares about his clients. I mean, from what I remember, um, you had told me that, I don't know if it's him that plays the guitar or, or would go and like yeah. sit alongside the clients that might be going through it and just being there for them and like connecting with them more on a cellular level rather than just uh, being some doctor that you see that just walks through and uh, comes and does his doctor uh, commitments and then takes off. No, he's like really invested in, in helping the clients firsthand. And I know that you are too. And, and Natalia, that goes without saying, she's just a great lady all around. I'm going to actually, like I told you before we even did the podcast, I want to have her on here. She's got a hell of a fucking story. I'm talking like, Oh yeah, <laughs> she does. I, I had lunch with her one day and what the, the stuff that she told me, I was like, Oh my God, like we need to get you on there. So that'll be coming up into the summer. But um, I I'm, I'm proud of you. Like I'm, I'm happy to have a friend like you. It's a trip. Like when you meet somebody, um, you know, a few times and you, you only know like surface level friendship or acquaintance. Like I didn't know much about you. I just knew like you, you're basically not just a good man in, in a professional setting, but like in, in our recovery community, like you, you've, you've been around, you stay around, you help a lot of people and you're very humble, you're like a gentle giant, just a good dude that, that I, and when I come there, like, you know, even when I've come to, to visit you guys at LifeSync, um, you're welcoming, but like, you're still making sure like day-to-day -day operations are in order and intact. And that, that's, that's very, that's a plus. That's like a good character trait. The fact that you really, really care about where you work. And I'm happy that it's, it's lasted longer than two weeks and you didn't have to retire because the treatment, the treatment world is definitely lucky, lucky to have you. Um, you're experienced, you're a good man. And, um, that's one of the reasons like you stood out to me. Then I wanted to have you on here because, uh, sometimes I, like you can just vibe with somebody's recovery without really knowing too much about them. And I could tell that about you. I could just tell like this dude, this guy's a good guy right here and, and keep doing what you're doing, man. It's, it's been good to hear from you. It's good to hear this story. I think that you give a lot of people a lot of hope. I can't help but think like if somebody was to, let's say Google the alcoholic condition and, and find us on YouTube and see this episode to see how you, what you went through, what you did to yourself, how you got sober, how you transformed and how you got on the, on the other end of this, you know, and to, to the point where now you've made it, uh, you know, your way of living to be able to be of maximum service to people and helping them and doing whatever you can to make sure that they too can get their lives back. That was really uncomfortable, but I appreciate all of it. <laughs> That's because your own worst, your own worst critic still, but I appreciate you, Mike. Like truly, I'm gonna come up and visit you guys again. So I'll set something up with you. But uh, but I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and having you on today. And um, I hope that this can help somebody. I think it helped a lot of people. So uh, again, thanks for coming to the corner, and uh, I'll be calling you soon, buddy. All right, thanks, brother. Thanks for having me, Pesh. Thank you. All right.